Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. It has been a tumultuous time in Europe's power and energy sectors, with a variety of internal and external shocks having an impact on energy markets and net zero progress. But exactly how big of an impact have these shocks had? Are we still on track to meet our 1.5 degree target? And is the grid still fit for our electrification and decarbonisation goals? To answer these questions and have a candid conversation about what lies ahead for Europe's power sector, I'm joined by Christian Ruby, Secretary General of Euroelectric. I am Pamela Log, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Christian Ruby, welcome and thank you for joining us. I think we should start with a nice easy question. How are we doing with our 1.5 degree goal? Is there light at the end of the tunnel and is that light the train? Well, as a global community, I think we're not exactly doing very fine in terms of delivering. Let's start with the good news that the world, some 8 billion people and close to 200 countries could actually come together to agree that we want decisive action on this. That was good news, but it's also quite a while ago, that was 2015. And since then, not enough has been happening. And we're beginning to see some really serious impacts of our lack of climate action that's weighing on our sector and it's wrecking havoc across the globe and causing hardship for people. So um, no, we're not on track and more needs to happen. The problem is that the context has become much more complex in the last few years. Indeed. And I think it's the context I want to speak about because people are saying, yeah, we need to drive this transition faster. But we're sitting with various economic and geopolitical changes and challenges. You know, we also need to ensure a just and inclusive transition. So how do we how do we go about doing this? How do we speed things up? Well, if we look at the major changes that have happened in the world since the Paris Agreement in 2015, I I'm of the opinion that we have experienced quite fundamental shift from what I would call a fairly rule-based international order where we had ambitions and the will to cooperate and trade with each other. From there, we have gone to a much more messy situation with increasing geopolitical rivalry, with trade tensions and with climate chaos. So this new world where nations and ideologies are competing much more fiercely, threatening to really, uh, let's say, trigger a regular breakdown in global trade, for instance, can very seriously change the context of the delivery agenda on climate action because we are dependent on trading with each other to actually do all these things. And of course, if 
nations are basically fighting with each other or even at war with each other, it's also more difficult to have a peaceful cooperation around climate action. And therefore, my deep hope and uh, wish is that we can get back on track and reestablish a more peaceful type of cooperation and continue what we built over the last three decades in terms of global cooperation and trading with each other. Before we drill down into the specifics of our decarbonization journey, how do we mitigate these threats, these macro threats that we are confronted with? Christian, is it a policy issue? You know, how do we facilitate this cross-border trade and these peaceful relationships? To be very frank, it's a bit above my pay grade. I am uh, appointed as Secretary General for the electricity industry. I was supposed to deal with delivering green electricity for the transition. And here we are in a much more complex world where, you know, we're talking ideological rivalry, uh, wars and so on and so forth. But, you know, my simple take on this is that at the very least, the world community should come together and say the war of aggression, the invasion attempts of Russia against Ukraine, the systematic bombing of civil infrastructure by the Russians in Ukraine, that needs to stop right here, right now. That is a precondition condition for sanctions to be lifted against Russia and for them to gradually start being accepted as an equal member of the international community. As you know, different countries have positioned them differently around this conflict and some have taken more a clear stance against uh, the Russian aggression than others. But I very, very firmly back up the European position on this, that this is just not a way for any country to deal with international affairs in the 21st century to to bomb, invade and, and shoot your neighbor. So this is a critical precondition. Then we have a difficult situation emerging with increased tensions between China and the US where the differences in ideology are coming to the fore. And I would say probably nobody really has the recipe for completely diffusing this difference of opinion and ideology at the moment. What I can say is that, again, the only way we can deal with the biggest problems that are facing this planet, which are the rapid decline of our ecosystems, the rapid buildup of carbon emissions in our atmosphere, those can only be solved if we are able to have a peaceful, constructive cooperation. Then we might have ideological differences persist, but we need to be able to have that partnering mindset around climate action. And that, to some extent, then has to coexist along with the competition and to some extent also the ideological rivalry. But there's no way around cooperation if we want to solve the biggest challenges on this planet. I realize that you are not a politician and solving world peace is not your your remit. However, drilling down into what is within your wheelhouse, which is electricity, decarbonization. Christian, talk to me about specifically within Europe, how fit is the grid? And perhaps should we say, are we fit for 55? What will the situation be in 2025? If you can give us some insight into how we're tracking in, in terms of our renewables integration and our electrification goals. Well, perhaps building a bridge from the previous conversation about geopolitics, what we're really witnessing is just how 
essential the whole issue of energy has become. I would argue that this is really part of the core of this conflict. It's about different takes on energy. It's about different approaches to energy. And the war strategies have been very focused on damaging uh, infrastructure, using energy as a blackmailing tool, as a pressure tool. We've seen a systematic bombing of the energy infrastructure of Ukraine in an attempt to basically make the country turn in. And we've seen a very, very courageous resistance from Ukraine, including from its big electricity companies. Last year, we had at our power summit, Max Timchenko, who is the CEO of DTEC, one of the biggest power companies in the country. And it was just extremely fascinating to hear what it's like to run a major utility in the midst of a war zone, to see your plants being invaded, to experience that your employees are targets of uh, military operations when they try to fix grids or the like, um, to have to deal with the fact that a significant part of your staff is being drafted for military service. That's just absolutely incomprehensible for most of us, the pressure that he's been working under. So coming back to the question about the grid, there is the decarbonization dimension of the grid. But I would add also in in this context, we need to see the grid in a new light. Grid infrastructures are, by definition, very long. I think we're saying in Europe we have an excess of, of 10 million kilometers of distribution grids. And... You know, you could go to the moon and back several times with that cord. Now, such an infrastructure is by definition also very exposed. You cannot physically guard such a huge infrastructure. What we are seeing for the moment in Europe is that Russia has basically been making systematic efforts at mapping the critical infrastructure in the Baltic Sea and the North Sea, finding out where the power plants, where are the interconnectors, where the internet cables, in the context of a so-called scientific mission. But um, when journalists sailed up to the ships that were doing this, guess what? They had armed guards on board and people wearing masks so they could not be uh, identified. So uh, there was a bit more than science to that exercise. And uh, this is a new dimension of resilience that we need to start integrating in our thinking about our infrastructure. How do we actually deal with this? We almost used to the fact that extreme weather was threatening our infrastructure. We were dealing with the fact we were seeing a rising number of uh, cyber attacks against this infrastructure. And now we have direct military threats to this infrastructure, along with proven examples of sabotage. And here I can mention, for instance, the Nord Stream that was bombed. So resilience is taking on a new dimension and it's adding another layer of complexity to climate action. If it was just about integrating renewables and connecting a lot of heat pumps, that was the challenge a few years ago. Now on top of that, we have a military threat dimension, uh, uh, a very present risk of sabotage that we need to integrate into this. So is the grid fit for 55? To come back to your specific question, the answer is it has to become fit. We have to invest in everything else in order to uh, manage the energy transition. We need to invest in grids. And that essentially has to do with the fact that doubling down on the Paris Agreement means doubling up 
on the use of electricity. We need to massively expand the use of clean, carbon-neutral electricity in our economic system, while at the same time phasing out fossil fuels and expanding this infrastructure that has been used to sort of more or less be in an equilibrium, uh, be stable around some 20% of total final energy consumption, and now uh, take on maybe 40 up to 50 or even more of the entire uh, system, that requires a huge expansion. We need more electricity. At the same time, it's a different type of electricity and we're gonna run the system in a completely different manner. Renewables are connected to the low voltage grids and so are the heat pumps and the electric cars. So the internal dynamics of the grids are shifting from the high voltage levels to the low voltage levels. And that requires some changes also in investment patterns and also in the system thinking. So all this needs to happen and it needs to happen within a very short time frame while we're dealing with military threats, cyber threats and increasingly bad weather, frankly. So that's a thing that we're studying quite closely. We brought out a study uh, called Connecting the Dots a few years ago, where we estimated the, the distribution grid in investment needs to some 400 billion euros in Europe in the 2020s. And that's two rounds of targets ago, and that's before we had an invasion and before the weather really started messing up. So we can add a bit to that bill. How you've described the the changing risk landscape and how you talk about the changing nature of the resilience that's required in the grid is is quite thought-provoking. And I can imagine that the next decade is going to see a lot of those investments and a lot of change in mindset, perhaps, in, in the focus and how we bring about that grid resilience. And that is a segue into my next question, really, because you've been um, Secretary General now for about five years at uh, Euroelectric, and you've obviously seen quite a fundamental shift in our risk landscape and, and our goals. Basically, your role must have taken on quite a new meaning over the last few years. How do you see that evolving over the next decade And what do you see are some of the key challenges that need to be overcome? Yeah, so I would agree that the challenge landscape has unfolded quite dramatically in recent years, and it does spell a a new set of challenges for us. What I can say is that the internal conversations we have are really moving from the target setting that was really, really prevalent in the European policy context in the past years to a much more delivery-oriented agenda. I don't hear anybody question the decarbonization objectives, the Paris Agreement. That is uh, treated as a given. The question is, how do we get there and how much do we try to accelerate and what do we do first, what do we do second? And just to give a bit of explanation here, we've come to a point with the targets where we have a lot of targets and they're very ambitious. The marginal value of having another target and another ambition level discussion is not very high. What really matters now is to see some change on the ground. We are seeing change and that's great, but we're not seeing nearly enough change. So how do we unlock that radical shift, that significant uptick in investments and a completely new pace of change in the sector. That's a key question. And it's 
a bit more nerdy. It's a bit more focused towards getting regulatory details right than the more broad stroke discussions about, you know, let's save the planet. It's about the nitty gritty of tariffs, of permission procedures, of market arrangements, of contracting and so on and so forth. And then, as I mentioned, the new sort of unexplored dimension is how do we deal with direct physical threats to the grid from hostile nations. One critical discussion that's really coming up now in a new way is the security of supply discussion. Back in the day when I joined, security of supply was sort of a code name for don't do anything. When people wanted ambitious action, some parts of the sector would have the standard reply security supply, and then that meant, well, we can't do anything because that's going to mess up the system. We've come an awful long way since then, and that discussion about security supply was not really in vogue for a long time. Now it's coming back big time, but with a new twist and with a new urgency because security supply is the new prerequisite for delivering on the net zero. Why is that? Well, As I said, decarbonization spells electrification. Electrification requires a strong electricity system, a growing electricity system and reliable electricity system. To make it very clear, we can't electrify the majority of our economy if we can't rely on the electricity system. So system reliability becomes a critical climate objective in itself in a certain way. And therefore, a new, informed, and I would say forward-looking discussion about what security supply means in the age of climate crisis, in the age of climate chaos, in the age of wars, in the age of rapidly developing disruptive technologies such as AI. What does security supply mean in that context and how do we deliver on it and how do we keep the system stable while scaling it at record pace? Christian, you talk about wars and climate chaos and there is an element of doom and gloom to what you're saying. What keeps you awake at night? You can call it doom and gloom, but... I don't know whether it's doom and gloom. It's essentially what you see when you open your television or your smartphone. That is the reality we're in. And it's been like that for a while now. So I actually insist as a person to be optimistic. But I also think that honesty is a prerequisite for informed public policy. So we have to talk about these things and we have to plan for them. So whether we call it doom and gloom, we need to have plans in place to deal with it. It is a reality that there is a systematic bombing going on of the electricity infrastructure of Ukraine. And we better have our plans in place should something of that nature come our way. It is a reality that we've seen unidentified military drones over nuclear plants in Sweden. It is a reality that security services in the Netherlands are flagging unidentified or uncommunicating military Russian ships around their offshore wind parks. We need to take this seriously. We cannot 
dispelled is this doom and gloom. It is the reality we're in. And what keeps me awake at night? Well, generally, I would say I sleep quite well. But I am saddened and angered by what I see. And I think it is the primary objective of us as a world community to put an end to this fighting that we're seeing and come back to basically dealing with the key agenda that we have, which is to do good on the damage we've inflicted on nature in the previous decades. So that doesn't keep me awake at night, but it does upset me. Am I correct in assuming that that is also your biggest driver and passion to continue doing what you're doing in the role that you have is to be a part of perhaps bringing about and affecting change? Absolutely. Christian, you've shared so much wisdom with us. Before we end off our discussion, I wanted to speak to you about the Power Summit that's taking place in June. I know that we will be there. We're really looking forward to it. What are the key focuses of the summit this year? What are you looking to achieve? So what we're trying to do with our Power Summit this year is to essentially try to capture some of these trends that we've been discussing here, the radical shifts around us and what the implications are for the sector, how the sector should be responding to this. And we basically sum that up with the tagline balance of power to try to illustrate these changes. And I think we're going to have some really, really interesting and novel discussions because the world has changed so much since we convened last. And we're going to hear how businesses across Europe are basically responding to all this. I will include a link below for registration. And we do look forward to the Power Summit. Christian, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Until next time. 